0: Let me say first, it's uh, really good to be back, good to be home. I'm sure all the members of our mission team that went to Kenya would echo that. Glad to be back home with the church that we love and family and familiar things and places. You know, we know that 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we urge you be reconciled to God. We also know as a as a mission group, a team of 12, not only are we representatives of Christ, we're also representatives of Calvary. And so we thank you for your, your prayers and your support financially so that we could be part of that mission. And um, if you could have seen, if you could have been a fly on the wall or, or a fly or two buzzing in my eyes when I was preaching, if you could have been there and seen what was happening, you would have been so proud of the team that went. Um, Our ladies taught. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,400 widows um, over two days, two long days of teaching. And the gospel was clear and the encouragement was strong and the scriptures were taught. And I know that God was honored by that. Um, We got to see your mission giving on display from a house built for a widow um, and her family to a home being built for orphans um, to a ministry in a school to the start of a new church in a village that's otherwise unreached. And so it was just good to see all those partnerships coming together, what God had ordained, the people that God has called there, and the partnerships that God has established here. You know, I told the folks there on Sunday mornings, I was speaking to them, how good it is for us sometimes to speak to you here because our vision of the kingdom of God and the work of God can get pretty narrow sometimes. And sometimes I think we're just so focused really on our own problems, our own lives, or we've so relegated God to this minor duty of life coach, um, relationship counselor, uh, occasionally genie doling out the benefits that we need, um, that we've lost sight of the grandeur of God. And why do we go on short-term mission trips? Or why are people called to missions? I think the only right answer is this, that the glory of God might be known among the nations. You know, we're not going there telling people that uh, if you follow Jesus, he's going to fix all your problems. There are a lot of problems in that group of 1,400 widowed ladies. When I say widow, it's not what you may be picturing if you're picturing just simply older ladies through natural causes and time have taken their spouses. We're talking about some women in their 20s, some 30s, 40s, 50s through tragedy and death and disease has changed their lives and they struggle on a daily basis. And what we're preaching is something so much bigger than that. We're preaching the grandeur of God, that God's glory would be known. Look up and see that there is a God who made all of this, made all of you, and will one day restore everything to perfect order. And one day wants to bless you in the heavenlies. And that's really what we're offering when we talk about the gospel here. It's no mere superficial self-help. It's not just fixing the stuff that you're dealing with today, though God is more than able to do anything He chooses, do anyone, anywhere. It's so much bigger than that is you can know the God of the universe and worship Him through Jesus Christ. He's made a way for that. But you would have been so pleased with our team and the work they did, and not just the teaching in the big groups, but their love for people or love on people. I think you also would be proud of our ministry partnership in Kenya, Echoes of Mercy, and all their affiliate ministries. Our folks served the downtrodden, the hurting, the impoverished, the disease-ridden, the orphaned, the widow, all for the glory of God. And I know that the Bible says this, God does not miss a beat. He does not miss a single portion of that. Even a cup of cold water given in my name, Jesus says, has eternal reward. And So I know the work that those folks did, that you sent, um, will have that. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your partnership, sending us, praying for us, supporting us. I also was reminded of a little lesson as I was getting up to preach that Sunday morning last week. And I leaned over and said to Stacy sitting beside me, and there have got to be a lot of hard stories out there. You know, I'm looking at some of these faces and just, just wondering what's behind that veneer. You know, what kind of pain, suffering, difficulty, some really hard stories up there. And it reminded me sometimes when you're preaching, you can't always judge by the facial reactions of people. Because I preached that morning to a lot of frowns and scowls. Now, maybe they didn't understand what I was saying. Maybe I was speaking in American euphemisms. Maybe I was going too fast. Maybe the translator wasn't hitting all the marks. I don't know. But it reminded me sometimes when I'm preaching to you, and I see those sour faces, and I see those scowls, the human side of me says, did I just say something they didn't like? Are they disagreeing with me on that? Do they not believe that? And really, you just, you just may have an upset stomach. You may have a parasite. Maybe you slept on a too short of a mattress tonight before. Maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe you've been frowning for so long that that's your natural mode now. So you know what? I'm not even going to look. It's not going to affect me at all. Because I know that God looks on the heart. And so God reminded me, don't look at the faces. I'm looking at the hearts. And God's truth penetrates there. So I'm going to pray that God's truth hits your heart today. Let's pray. God, you're sovereign. There's nothing outside of your control. Not the biggest of worldwide events. Not the smallest molecule. For those that don't know you, particularly for those who set themselves against you, that's a frightening thought that there is an almighty God they have denied or defied. But for us who belong to you, who've been adopted by you, who've been brought into your family permanently as sons and daughters, that's awfully comforting to us because we live in confusing times and perilous times. We live in times where conflict seems to be coming up over the the horizon, heading our way. Lord, may we trust in You. May we trust in Your purposes. But not just Your power, Father, but Your love. For everything that You do springs from mercy and grace, compassion towards us. And that those two attributes, power and love, Justice, mercy, grace, truth, they're all combined, perfectly in use, just an amazing thing. So God, reveal Yourself to us today and teach us through Your Word and help us to hear it, I mean, really hear it, comprehend it, empower us to do it, to want it, to live it for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 15 today. Starting in verse 36, I told Dan uh, before his message last week, Dan, don't fumble the ball. This is the most important message in the entire book of Acts. So if I come back and you've made a mess of things, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I know he didn't. So I know Dan delivered the goods last week. Share with you the importance of the Jerusalem council. You know, it's not just history there. It's, it's about the gospel itself. And what does it really mean to be saved? And what does God require of us? And, and to understand that our salvation is fully of grace. Well, let's dispense any notion that God requires, expects, needs, anything from us to save us. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation ultimately is the sin that made it necessary. And God gives everything else. We see in the Jerusalem Council that, that right monumental decision. This is what it will mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now at the conclusion of this Jerusalem Council, we see Paul embarking on what is his second missionary journey. Now, the purpose of Paul's second missionary journey is rather straightforward. It's summarized in verse 36 of chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I mean, I love that. That's simple. It's succinct. Paul was not a hit-and-run sort of evangelist. Paul was not tallying decision cards. He, he was not posting on his Aegean uh, website Here's how many people raised their hand last night at the revival service. Now, he was interested in this. He was interested in real disciples. He was interested in seeing people genuinely converted to faith in Jesus Christ and that those people would flourish, that they would grow up in their faith and that they would make other disciples. And so he's going back to check on them. Paul was about establishing churches, not just making converts, establishing real believers there. So as Paul begins to go back On the second missionary journey, I'm skipping to the end. Something amazing is going to happen here. And so I won't have time at the end to go into great detail. We'll revisit it again next week. Don't undersell how important this is. There's one particular convert that's going to be made towards the end of this missionary journey, and her name is Lydia. That was pretty cool. Thanks to you, I was able to take a sabbatical a few years back, and we traced through the missionary cities of the Apostle Paul, and one of those was Philippi. And so when we finally made it to Philippi, uh, we drove over there. I was really expecting this to be kind of a hot spot, a tourist hot spot. There's a church there by the little stream where Lydia was baptized. There's a commemorative place there that's built where now people are being, still being baptized in that stream. And I thought, man, we are going to battle the crowds here. That church is going to be packed. I hope we get a good glimpse of it. And Sicilian I got there and there was nobody there but us. And so we got to be right there in that little stream, that little river. And think about it. In this place, the tip of of the point of the spear of the gospel in Europe happens. The first convert, Lydia, Lydia, and then her household. And from here, the gospel is going to blow up. It's going to penetrate all of Europe for the first time. And and that's the ultimate result of this missionary journey. You see this in verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. What does that mean? Was she already a Christian? No. What it meant was she was a a pagan, a Gentile, who seeing the worth, the the intrinsic worth of the worship of the Jews, seeing how they honored God and certainly seeking after the one true God, had begun to engage in, in public worship with them. I want to know God also. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is my favorite statement in all the book of Acts. I'm personalizing that one, okay? So I'm praying that for you. The Lord will open your heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, all right? After she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. What was she doing? Come and teach us, come and stay. I believe she was establishing a house church right then and there. Not just for me, not just for my family, but for my friends, for my family, my neighbors. Stay, teach us. But, In between the launch of this journey, with all the right motives, I want to revisit all the places. That seems like a great idea. Let's see how the church is doing there. And the the entrance of the gospel into Europe, there were a lot of difficulties along the way. This wasn't just the smoothest of paths. Now, before I read the text, I want to give just sort of, I don't know, maybe some precursory thoughts on the text. Luke is a historian, and he's good on the details. And one of the reasons you and I can know, another factor that gives us a sense of confidence in the accuracy of Scripture that we have, is that authors like Luke don't hold back unflattering details. They're not simply trying to paint a picture here of Paul bigger than life. As legendary as he is, and rightly so, as heroic a figure as he is, and and rightly so, he's not without flaws, he's not without difficulties, and the path of the gospel moving forward was a a difficult one, a challenging one. And so as we see this sort of presented in an unflattering way of Paul and Barnabas in conflict, it's just one more validation that this is what happened. Another thing I want you to know, maybe make a note in your margins if you're a good note taker. What we see here is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? This is descriptive. This is one of those narrative passages where it's simply telling you what happened. It's not saying for us, Here's a step-by-step on how to deal with all conflict. Nor is it written primarily as a justification for Christians who don't get along, okay? So if you leave here with this, if you leave here with saying, well, I read the passage and Paul, this one, said about conflict this. Listen, that's not the primary point of the passage. This is descriptive, but there are some lessons we can learn from it. So let's look at those difficulties starting in verse 36. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Let's see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You get the problem? Barnabas, the encourager, Barnabas, the one who first advocated for Paul, Barnabas, the one who bridged the gap between this new convert who had once been the preeminent persecutor of the church to now being the preeminent spokesperson for the church. It was Barnabas there advocating. Barnabas has a nephew named John Mark. John Mark had been with Paul before. And if we're reading from this text and getting a sense of it, his withdrawal from them was not benign, okay? He was at fault here. It, for whatever reason, the scripture doesn't go into detail, was the missionary journey too taxing, too exhausting? Uh, was it too challenging for him? Was the cost too high? Was he afraid? Was he struggling with his faith? Well, we, we don't know, but it's not presented in a positive light that he quit on them. And so when it's presented by Barnabas, Barnabas the encourager, Barnabas a family member, Barnabas who presumably knows John Mark better than Paul does, Barnabas says, hey, let's bring him along with us. And Paul says, that's a no-go. Been there, done that. And I, I can't move forward with the gospel I can't advance into the kingdom of the enemy with somebody I can't trust. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Now, I don't want to belabor the point. You can do a word study on your own, but the idea of sharp disagreement here is not just a gentleman's debate. This was not just a matter of, let's agree to disagree. I don't want him. I'm in charge. You want him. He's not coming. This is a sharp disagreement. The root of this is the sort of disagreement that creates physical conflict. Now, we don't know, and I don't want to read into the text. Things aren't there, but these guys were going at it. I mean, this was serious. This was heated and strong. This is something they both presumably felt very strongly about. There's conflict. What do you do? Well, Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now Paul embarks on the second missionary journey, but he embarks alone. Silas would join him later, and he leaves Barnabas behind. What do we make of this conflict? Again, as I said, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And yet we're given a glimpse behind the scenes of the imperfections of people. Now, if you're trying to really analyze this deeply, I would say this. Every conflict has at its root some sort of sin. Every conflict does, whether that's our selfishness, um, whether it's our anger in the moment, um, whether it's our, our bent towards conflict. So to say that they're sinless, I think, would be, would be false. The Scripture doesn't attribute sin to either of them, but that would be an argument from silence. At every conflict, there's a root of some wrongdoing. Whether it's something about my attitude, my heart my actions, my words, whatever it may be, but we don't know what those are here. We're not granted the option really to speculate. But there's real conflict here, conflict enough that they go their own ways, and they don't work together again on missionary journeys. So what are the implications of that? Well, I've listed in your notes some thoughts on conflict in the Christian life, and I like to, I like to use the word some because it's not all thoughts. It's not comprehensive thoughts. All inclusive thoughts, but just some thoughts on conflict in Christian life. First one is this, some conflict is unavoidable. I mean, it just is. Some conflict is unavoidable, but our aim as Christians, nonetheless, is always peace. I mean, it's always the aim, and we shouldn't read into this text differently. When you get to Romans chapter 12, verse 16, we see this written as command, inspired by the Spirit, written by Paul. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See how some of those sins might be at play? My pride, my inflated sense of insight or wisdom. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable inside of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, I'm not saying that Paul wrote that directly in response to the conflict with Barnabas, but surely he learned something from that conflict. But that's his aim. That's his heart. That's the heart of God. As much lies within me. And that's where I have to evaluate, God, is it my pride? Is it my sense of superiority? Is it my inflated view of my own opinion that's causing this conflict or enabling it? As much as is possible, I'm supposed to live at peace. But sometimes, conflict's unavoidable. Here's something else you need to know about conflict. Unity, at all costs, is not biblical. It's not biblical. I'm one of those guys who doesn't post a lot on Twitter, but I read a lot and follow a lot of trends and track a lot of threads and conversations. It seems to be this predominant idea now among modern Christians, particularly of our stripe, Southern Baptists, It seems to elevate... Peaceful unity at all costs, even if there's theological disagreement, philosophical disagreement, even if there's biblical disagreement, that the most important thing is that we all get along, work well together, and be unified, and push all those differences aside. But that is not, that's not biblical. The highest aim is never, let's just all get along. All that does is waters down the truth hinders effectiveness, and ultimately hampers the gospel itself. That's not. Sometimes separation is the best outcome. Now, I don't want to take too long on this little excursus, but I find it necessary. Okay, so bear with me just for a second. Did you happen to notice a little asterisk in your notes on that point? I hope it's there. Sometimes separation is necessary. Asterisks. What's the asterisk for? Here's something I've learned And I'm no expert, okay, but it's something i picked up over 25 years or so of preaching. In my mind, I've got four or five big things I want you to hear from today's message. I'll have a conversation with one of you in about three or four months, and you'll say something like this. You know that message that you gave, that last message in July from Acts? Man, I love that message. Remember that part where you said, um, you know, if I have conflict, I should separate from my husband? That really helped me. Okay, that's not what I'm saying here. This is not about your marriage. Marriage is not a partnership. Okay? Marriage is a one flesh union. That's a different thing. One flesh unions don't just decide in conflict or disagreement to separate, because when marriages separate, they rip, they tear apart. They tear apart hearts and lives and families of flesh. That's different. So don't take this. Well, you said sometimes separation is the best. I'm not talking about marital separation here. That's a whole other subject. Nor am I saying there aren't some times where, where there's real conflict and it's violent, it's physical and all that, that there aren't times of separation necessary because this isn't about marriage. This is about ministry. This is about two Christians. This is about people trying to work together who now can't. So, what's the best aim? The best aim sometimes is we need to just go our separate ways. And as we do, we know this. God can and will use conflict to advance His purposes. And I put two words there that are critical. His purpose is in us and His purposes is through us. See, I have to believe this. God, who's always at work in me. I was thinking of this this morning as I was praying about this message. On the one hand, God is infinite in mercy and grace towards us. And thankfully so. That God is patient towards us who are sinners still. Not sinners by our nature. God is changing, has changed our nature. But we still fail in sin. If we confess our sins, though, His infinite grace and mercy forgives our sin. Cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Though He is infinite in grace and mercy, He is also relentless in sanctification. You see how those two work together? Just because God forgives does not mean that God condones and does not mean that God allows us to remain in sinful states. He's relentless in sanctification, working something in us. So I'm convinced that in this, God is working something inside of Barnabas and Paul. He's also going to work something through them. And the reason I say God can work through conflict is simple. It's the same reason I would say God can work through anything. God can use anything for his purposes. Things meant for evil, like when Joseph's brothers wanted him to be dead and sent him off as a slave. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In storms of life, Or literal storms. God works for good in people, both good and evil. God works for good. He works through Peter and Paul, and he works through Judas. Nothing is outside of his scope and his hand. And so God's going to work his purposes. But here's something we need to know, and I want to move past this point to the rest. Conflict among Christians is always redeemable. It's always redeemable. That's not the same thing as saying it will always be redeemed. But the capacity for redemption in conflict is always there. Conflict among Christians, among true believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, should never be the final word. Conflict among Christians does not create enemies among Christians, or we're doing it wrong. That's sin. It doesn't mean we don't pray for one another. It doesn't mean we don't care about the lives of one another. There's always redemption available to us. Consider 1 Corinthians 9, 6, kind of interesting. Several years down the road in Paul's ministry, he references Barnabas. And he's talking about compensation for people in the ministry. And by implication, he's clearly including Barnabas in the description of people that are like him. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Barnabas, like me, should he not, as a vocational minister of the gospel, be compensated for Barnabas, that's an advocation of him. Or what about John Mark, the same John Mark that he said, "No way, he's not going with me," and I'll fight over this point. He's not going with us. When you get to Colo- I mean, when you get to Second Timothy four eleven, you see this. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, and bring him with you, for he's very useful for me in the ministry. That's redemption. And maybe Paul was right. The church council seemed to side with Paul. Verse forty, they commended him. Luke doesn't paint. John Mark in a positive light in verses 36 and 37. But later, have redemption, Paul was not being vindictive, said this is not going to work, but later he's useful. Another reference for you is Colossians 4.10. Paul's writing a greeting. At the end of his letter, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you receive instructions, if he comes, you welcome him. Welcome him. John Mark was not Paul's enemy. Barnabas was not Paul's enemy. They just weren't going to be partners. So there's a bit of of insight in how Christians handle conflict. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's a reference to the Jerusalem council. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. Unfortunate conflict, brokenness in partnership, But the ultimate result, churches are strengthened, numbers daily. Look at some things that came from this conflict, by the way, how God redeemed it. This is God, by the way. This is not a credit to Barnabas or Paul. This is what God did even through conflict. One, the mission work was doubled. That one's obvious, right? Instead of two missionary teams, instead of one missionary team, now there's two. You got Paul and Silas, you got Barnabas and John Mark, and God blessed both of those. Ultimately, as the verses I read to you just a moment ago, indicated John Mark is restored. Young man matures, presumably. Grows up in the faith, develops some spines, some backbone, some resilience, some usefulness to the ministry. And, you know, I, I have no, I have no doubt that Paul was a, a hard guy. Hard as we would see people today. I, I don't think the modern church would uh, well receive the Apostle Paul, honestly. He, he's too direct. He, he's too blunt. He, he's too straightforward. Um, he, he's too unfiltered. He, he's too confrontational. Um, he cuts right through. We want nice Uh, We want pleasantries. Um, You know, the, the greatest sin that anyone can be guilty of in the culture you and I live in today is to be offended, right? Well, that offends me. Well, the Apostle Paul here would just offend the heck out of you. He would offend the heck out of all of us. And if we're reading the Word of God rightly and not filtering it through our own lens of compromise, social sensitivities, personal beliefs and predilections, we would see that He's still offensive today. John Mark is restored. Paul and Barnabas, I'm convinced both grew from this personally. And by the way, Silas added some real benefits to the team. There's some things about Silas that would make the work even more successful. One, Silas had the relationship and came from Jerusalem. He's the bridge from the Jerusalem Council to the ministry of Paul. Paul. Silas' presence throughout all of Paul's ministry is a a validation of what Paul was doing, fits under the auspices of the central church, as it were, the one church where one people, whether it's a Jerusalem church, an Antioch church, an Asian church, a European church, he's the bridge to that. Silas is also the one that can interpret what the Jerusalem council did wherever they go, and that's of no small importance in Paul's ministry, because now Paul is ministering primarily to non-Jewish people. So what did the Jerusalem council mean? Well, Silas is that bridge. We see in other passages, First and Second Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, that Silas was capable. Silas was probably a co-author of, or at least a secretary for two of Paul's letters. And Silas had this advantage. He was Roman. And so when they got arrested together, Paul and Silas, now both of them could appeal to Rome. So not only does Silas have benefits, but a young man named Timothy emerges. Timothy was presumably a convert under the ministry of Paul. Paul will later call Timothy a son in the faith. What do you have that you've not received from me? He says, talking about spiritual things. And now Timothy's emerging, and Timothy ultimately will pastor a church in one of the toughest cities in the world, Ephesus. And he'll be the personal mentor or mentee of his mentor Paul. A couple of quick questions, because I, I feel like you're going to ask them. So I'm going to try to answer them real quick, okay? Now keep in mind, for those of you who are perpetual watch watchers, I'm only doing this for you. <laughs> okay? Because I know you want to know. Um, I had a godly, older saint, a lady asked me regarding this passage. About Timothy's circumcision. You know, Paul had Timothy circumcised before they start this mission towards these unconverted Jews there. And she asked me in all seriousness, well, how would they have known? Well, how would they have known? The simple answer is this they would have asked. They would have asked. That would have been an important point. It might be something like this. Um, If I'm hearing your testimony before you join the church, one of the questions I want to ask you is, have you been baptized? I don't need to see that you're wet. I just need your testimony and hoping that as an honest person, you wouldn't lie to me. Well, Timothy, you have no reason to lie to him about this. It's simply something they would have asked. You see, his father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. Well, who would determine whether or not someone would become Jewish in that scenario? Dad. As a Greek, his son would not have been circumcised. They would have known this. So knowing his background, knowing his Greek heritage, language he speaks, the way he speaks it, knowing where he's from, he's not one of them, he's an outsider, this is something they would have known. Now the question that arises is, was Paul inconsistent in his theology? Because in Galatians, Paul deals with this very issue regarding Titus. And he deals with it rather stridently to the point where he says, listen, I made sure, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I made sure that Titus was not going to be circumcised. Listen to what he says in, in Galatians chapter 2. Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us back into slavery, that's slavery to the law, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. You see, in Titus' situation, if you're comparing these two, in Titus' situation, Paul refused to have him circumcised because the gospel itself was at stake. You see, because in Galatians, this was that conflict that we see sort of um, in light of the aftermath of the Jerusalem council, that you still have people believing and teaching. We see this right at the beginning, of Acts chapter 15, right? What were they saying? You've got to believe in Jesus, and you've got to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. And the whole point of Galatians is this. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's grace and grace alone that sets us free. And so he says, listen, the gospel's at stake here. I'm not going to concede to you that in order for Timothy to be right with God, he's got to follow that tradition. No, it's a no-go. The gospel's on the line here. And remember, these were false brothers pushing for Titus circumcision. These weren't real Christians. In Timothy's situation, it's different. It's not the gospel that's at stake here. It's the hearing of the gospel. Paul knew there's gonna be a natural barrier. They're not gonna receive Timothy and his ministry. Who's not going to? The Jews in these places, as Paul, in every city he went to, was starting these synagogues. And as a Jew himself who's, who had met the Messiah and been transformed by him, he's introducing Jesus to people like himself. And he knew that Peter would, I mean, I'm sorry, he knew that Timothy would not even get a hearing. When they found out his dad was Greek, knowing this guy's not circumcised. And so this was for the hearing of the gospel. Paul was willing to, if we need to become like all men in order to win some, I'll do that. If, if being circumcised is your entry point to share the gospel with them, then, then so be it. You can do that. But remember, these were not Christians asking for his circumcision. These would be Jewish people asking one commentator said this, there's no evidence that Paul objected to Jewish Christians practicing their ancestral religion, including the circumcision, as long as it was understood that doing so was not necessary for salvation, either for them or for the Gentiles. If you want to practice those traditions, that's fine, as long as you understand the gospel and what saves you. The problem with the Judaizers that Dan dealt with last week in Acts 15.1 is that they believed unless you were circumcised and kept all the Mosaic law, including circumcision, you could be saved. So I hope you see the difference. On Titus, the whole gospel hinges here. It's not Jesus plus acts of the law. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. But if I need to cut my hair, if I need to be circumcised, if I need to refuse to eat this or drink that or do this for the sake of the gospel, that's easy. That's an easy call. And that's what Paul made. I want to get to the conversion of Lydia very quickly and then we'll close. Look how God advances the gospel here. Look what God does. I'm not going to elaborate on this for time's sake, but I I want you to see it. It's the only way God advances the gospel. Whether you're talking about a nation, an unreached people group, a tribe, a community, a family, an individual, God opens doors, God opens hearts. If God's not opening doors, we'll not be successful. If God's not opening hearts, people will not be saved. Now, the problem with this logic that I'm throwing out to you here today is this. We often perceive of any challenge or difficulty as a quote-unquote closed door. And so I'm, I'm putting a check on myself, even as I share this with you, that terminology of open door, closed door, because we so often use that as an excuse. Well, God closed that door. I want you to, every time you've ever thought that or used that or, or tempted to use it in the future, I want you to hold that up in comparison to what you see the struggles for the sake of the gospel are in the Apostle Paul's life. Because there are a lot of times where he simply could have surmised, well, God must have closed that door. You remember that time, you know, they picked up rocks and thought I was dead, left me there for dead, and I got drugged out of the city? Yeah, you remember that time I got snake bit? I mean, the shipwrecks. The conflict with Bar. I mean, the list just goes on. You know how many times I've been arrested? You know how many times I've been beaten? Imprisoned? Humiliated? We've got to be careful. What we consider a closed door. Opposition, difficulty, hardship. Those aren't closed doors. That's life. That's stuff. you are talking about two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Satan will not easily yield his territory, whether that's a An unreached people group, like the tribe we visited. Or whether that's your obstinate son or daughter. Another spiritual warfare there. Be careful. Look what happens. And they went through the region of Phrygia, Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We're not elaborate on how He did not allow them, but He hemmed the men. He prohibited it. Whether that was through conflict, difficulty, arrest—we don't know. He Didn't allow it to happen. Verse nine: And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, "Come over to Macedonia and help us." I've got a vision. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were suppo- where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who came together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, so we know what she heard. She heard the gospel. We know what she did. She believed in it, put her faith and trust in it. We know that because she was baptized as a statement of that faith. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us, and they stayed. A couple of quick questions, and we'll close. Why did the Holy Spirit forbid them from going to Asia? When you read that, do you scratch your head? I kind of wish I could be part of that discussion that's going to go on in some of the life groups next week, as y'all bat this one around. Why did God forbid them going to Asia? It says very clearly, he forbid them. And your thought might simply be this. In the gospel for everyone, And the answer to that question is yes. Are there some people we shouldn't be preaching to, some places we shouldn't go? Answer, of course, is no. That's not what this is about. What we need to understand is this. First of all, the prohibition was temporary. This wasn't permanent. Never go into Asia. I've written those people off. That's not what this is about. Don't go there. Those people are terrible. Don't go there. No, that's not what this is about. It's not about a people group or a place that is forbidden to be touched. That's not it. Also understand that God's strategy is always perfect. For all of us proud theological debaters, proud of our theological positions, and we love to debate soteriology and Arminianism and Calvinism and all those things, please take heart in this. God wills the salvation of mankind more than you do. And God is working His purposes perfectly. So God's strategy is perfect. But here's what's pretty cool when you see it and you connect two big dots in Scripture. Paul is not the only weapon in God's arsenal. Certainly, he was one of the sharpest and one of the best. He was not the only weapon in God's arsenal. He said, what do you mean? Well, read this little introductory statement with me by Peter. You remember Peter, right? Peter was a man of some note, some spiritual heft and effectiveness. Read what Peter wrote in his introduction to his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, you catch that, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Holy Spirit told Paul, don't go to Asia, but He sent Peter there. Listen, you're not the only person that God is using, but God will use you specifically if you'll listen to His voice, listen to His will, follow His direction. But God is working a different plan in Asia, and it was through Peter more than it was through Paul. What are some lessons for us through this missionary endeavor and the opening and closing of doors and hearts? One is keep pushing forward. Keep pushing forward always until God closes that door so emphatically you can't go through it and know that it's, when he does that, he's simply redirecting you. He's not shutting you down. I feel like that's important enough to make a whole sermon off of it, but I have no time. But here's what you need to know. Just because it's failed here or become difficult here or it's, you feel with all your heart that God shut it down here it does not mean God's shutting you down. I think way too many of us, when it got hard or it got challenging, it took one person to mock it, one person whose questions we couldn't answer, one person to angrily respond to us, and we hang it up, man. We just, I, I tried that. I'm, I'm not good at that. I don't want to do that anymore. So God was just redirecting Paul. He was not refusing him. He was redirecting him. Also know that you discover God's will and direction through many factors. You say, well, Paul got a vision. Man, if I could just get a vision, if I could get a man standing there, I'd go. But it's more than just that. We see all interspersed through this text. The wisdom of the Jerusalem church and its elders. We see the conversations and counsel that surely happened between Barnabas and Paul that launched the journey, or that initiated the launch of the journey, Paul and Silas, circumstances. Listen, God is revealing His will through many different factors and people. For us, what's most important is that we trust Him. We trust Him. We've got to learn to trust Him. Just because it got hard doesn't mean God's not in it. It's because it became costly. I mean, I hope we all learned that lesson from Paul. When you see what he suffered for the sake of the gospel, sufferings, he said, filled up the sufferings of Christ. We'll talk about that more. It doesn't mean God wasn't with him. It means God was. Trust God. And when you've got the leadership of God, you go. You go. Some of my biggest regrets um, are feeling the nudge of the Holy Spirit to speak to someone and then not doing it not going. And I don't want to always presume. I don't want you to read into what I said today that my fumbling of the ball is okay because that means there's a Peter out there to do what Paul did. God wants to use you. Sometimes very specifically you. We've got to learn to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and obedient to his call. The result, Lydia. Lydia, the first one of millions upon millions upon millions. God had a divine appointment there by that river that day. God was doing something Paul couldn't have imagined. Paul said, I'm going this way. God said, no, I want you to go this way. And he hemmed him in, made it impossible to go, sent him a clear message he couldn't avoid because there was a divine appointment. Paul went, what does God want from me and you? The kindness and generosity of spirit, the encouragement and compassion of Barnabas, the power, the determination the resolve of Paul, he just wants you to be obedient you. Be obedient you. And then it's God who opens the heart. The saving grace of God. And that's how every salvation everywhere happens. Anybody, anywhere, I would put that formula on it. A divine appointment. A moment where the Spirit of God does something in a heart that goes beyond human understanding. An obedient messenger who gives the gospel message. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. No one is saved apart from that gospel message. And saving grace. Let's pray that we're part of that. Let's pray for that. Let's pray that we would recognize the divine appointments and respond to them. Let's pray for confidence and boldness to always be obedient in all those opportunities. And let's trust God to be God. Knowing that God desires it more than we do. And that's what God does for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, your word is, is powerful. It's strong. It penetrates. There's so much here that penetrates. It's a deep, deep well, too. There's so much to be drawn up out of it. And Father, I say this often. I say this to your people here, and I don't want us just to be students of this word, dissecting it like some sort of ancient text or getting lost in the high weeds of nuance just word meanings Father this is meant to be life giving life changing truth it's you, it's you speaking to us your word is powerful and alive and it's sharp and so God we're commanded to be doers of this what is it you want us to do Father I pray those would be our takeaways today God what would you have of me what would you have of me why would you bring me here this morning What did you want to say to me? What am I supposed to do today, Father? So, Father, I pray each of us would hear and respond in that way. God, speak to our hearts even now as we seek you. As you pray, will you ask God that? What do you want from me today, God? What is it you want from me today? Why me today here, hearing this? Why this text? Why me? Why now? What, God? If you're not a believer yet... And I think the answer is pretty clear and pretty simple. Look at the story of these men and the aim to which they would go, the ends to which they would go to reach this aim, the aim of getting the good news of Jesus Christ out to places who had not heard. Why would they do that? This was not for material gain. This was not for fame. This was not for fear of eternal damnation, if they didn't, if they failed. No, they're firmly held in the hands of God's grace. They made nothing for the journeys and suffered greatly, so why? Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of God compels me. You know, so songs we sang, you're listening to and maybe sang along with, it's because of what God has done for us. It's because our own salvation. It's because we've discovered That there is forgiveness affordable to us. There's grace to be given to us. That God is not unknowable and absent. He's personal and close to the brokenhearted. That God, though king and judge and perfectly righteous, who will hold me account of everything I've said or done and nothing is hidden from his sight, is is also merciful and forgiving if I'll seek his forgiveness. The God who I've refused to believe in or rejected what he said or just ignored altogether has been pursuing me. And He brought you right here so that before him you would humble yourself, seek his forgiveness, trust in his promise that God sent Jesus to save sinners. Oh God, save me from my sin. Restore me. Give me a relationship with you. Maybe you're a worshiper today. Make me your follower today. Make me your son or daughter today. I think it's pretty clear why I brought you here. But Christian, for you, there may be maybe something quite different. Maybe you're in this sort of this cycle of inertia. You're really not doing anything for the kingdom. The reasons are myriad. What are you going to do about it? maybe God's calling you maybe God's calling you out right now this is what I want you to do I'm not that man from Macedonia but I'm a man telling you heed the voice of God if he's calling you what does God want you to do listen just a moment we're going to sing a song of response a lot of you will know this song by heart which means you'll be tempted to sing it without thinking I surrender all. Christian, don't simply dismiss that response song as for somebody else who's not a Christian yet. I surrender all is a missionary song. It's a reconcile with someone who you have a broken relationship with song. It's accept the call of God song. It's a do what God wants you to do song. It's a yielding to the authority of Christ song. So let your singing of it be your response to him today. What do you want from us today, God? For some here today, God, I believe you're calling them to abandon the sin that has so ensnared them, enslaved them, even defining them. And find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Savior, alone. To yield their lives to the King, the God of the universe, Father, I pray that some will do that today. Father, for others, you may be calling, sending, I don't know. May we hear your spirit today and respond. May this be our right response to you today, I pray in Jesus' name.